welcome to episode four of Ken Griffey's Grotesquely Swollen Jaw, the podcast that follows my journey as I try and get into the wonderful sport of baseball. Joining me in the fourth episode is someone who's almost done the opposite journey of me, going from the home base of an American baseball childhood and an upbringing to now working in soccer in Europe. So joining me, Stuart, today is Spence. Spence, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me, Stuart. I appreciate it. No problem at all. So, Spence, um, you're from Chicago, uh, is that right? So they've got two big teams there. There's the, the White Sox and the Cubs. So which which is your team and is there a particular reason why why you picked one and not the other? Yeah, I am a White Sox fan, which um, probably if you polled the general population of Chicago would come up more, I would say, on the Espanol side of the Barcelona bracket rather than Barca itself. But um, I grew up on the north side, which is actually the, the side that, that the Cubs are on. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and most people I grew up around were Cubs fans. And um for I'm not really sure the exact reason that I ended up as a White Sox fan. Both teams were pretty bad back then, so it had nothing to do with how good they were playing. But um, I just latched on to their style of play, and we would go to games. I think in part two, my dad grew up in New York as a Mets fan, so the Mets and the Cubs had a little bit of a rivalry going. And so he, you know, I sort of inadvertently went over to the American League and I became a White Sox fan, but it's a great city for baseball. So you've got the, of course, the history. I mean, I was you know, looking just, just before we recorded, I, I did realize they were both well over 100 years old, which must be quite quite unique to have two teams, two historic teams within within the same city. Um, so you've mentioned the Espanol-Barcelona um, comparison. Is that affair that the Cubs are the big dominant team and then the the White Sox are the the, the smaller one or is it a bit more nuanced to that you, you mentioned the locations within the city or yeah it's I would it's not exactly like for like in terms of the comparison but um the Cubs are definitely the more global team they're at any time you go to a Cubs game whether it's at Wrigley Field in Chicago or on the road wherever they're playing there are always Cubs fans they're everywhere uh, no, no matter where you go, uh, similar to the Yankees in that respect. And uh, they, you know, in general, I would say you're either a North Sider or a South Sider. And everyone, uh, the majority of people on the South Side are White Sox fans, and the majority of people on the North Side are Cubs fans. And there's history with both teams. There's a long history of losing with both teams. Um, they, they went uh, between 1917 and 2005 both of them without winning a World Series. And uh, so they had each won a lot in the early 1900s. And then the Sox uh, grabbed a World Series title in 05. The Cubs finally, after 108 years, got one. The back to the future joke about the Cubs never winning the series. Yep, yep. They got one in 2016. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even as a White Sox fan, and I've always sort of been – I, I would say I, I never I never hated the Cubs. I think that's a strong word. There are a lot of people who do, but I because um, I've I've actually worked for one of the Cubs minor league teams in my career. So, um, but I I always I always rooted for the city, and so when the Cubs finally won the World Series, I was happy for the city. 
Um, and a lot of my Cubs fan friends were happy to also give me plenty of flack for, for what, what they were waiting so long for. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, again, you, you mentioned the, the National League, American League. So if they're not, it's not like a big soccer rivalry. Um, the Barcelona, Real Madrid, they are always in each other's faces fighting for the, for the titles. But with the Cubs and White Sox not always fighting against each other as much, it maybe gives away that sort of friendly, almost brotherly rivalry, it seems, as you've, um, as, as you've described. Well, they do play every year. When when they introduced uh, interleague play, which I think came in 1998, if I'm not mistaken, that set up interleague series every year between the Cubs and White Sox. And there were always three games at Wrigley, three games at uh, what's now called Guaranteed Rate Field. It's had a number of names in the past, the new Comiskey Park. Um, the, the, the rivalry's always been there because Chicago would get up for those three games every year, uh, or those six games. And now I think they've reduced it down to four a year, two and two, because there's interleague play always ongoing yeah. because there's 15 teams in the American League and 15 teams in the National League. So there has to be one uh, series between interleague teams at all times. And th- believe me, that I would say they're, right now the two teams themselves don't have a lot of bad blood, but the fan bases are always there. Fan bases are always ready to give the other one uh, you know what? What they? What's on their mind? No, so it's not quite everybody sat hold, holding hands in the same same Ooh. area of, of the ballpark. So it's, yeah. it's a bit 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 more um, edgier than that. Uh, so we, we we did mention the the ballpark. So I mean the namings is is different. So we've got in the north side, we've got the Cubs playing at Wrigley Field, which is one of the historic homes of, of baseball. And then in the south side, we've got the White Sox playing at um, a stadium. It's called the Cell Guaranteed Rate Field. So one of these modern stadiums that changes its name every every five years or so. Is that a, a point of the rivalry that the Cubs are like, we've got this cool historic home, you guys are in this corporate stadium down south, or is it um are the White Sox equally as proud as their of their ballpark? Uh as far as the ballparks are concerned, I'll tell you as a White Sox fan, I think the most historic stadium in all of the world is Wrigley Field. Uh, and every time I go there, you know, I, I would I would I would be hesitant to say it publicly. But, man, I love going there because it's so it's so great. They just finished renovations on it about, um, I want to say, like six or seven years ago now, right before they won the World Series. They added digital scoreboards, which they had been um, holding back on. They, they'd sort of been brushing aside for a while they updated the clubhouses because that stadium has been around since the early 1900s. I mean, it's old. Uh, they still kept the manual scoreboard where there's there's a little guy in behind the scoreboard. Clicking of the, uh, the, putting, the yeah, manual putting, paper. Just, yeah. um, I, I liked that even though they created these digital video boards in the outfield, these giant digital video boards, um, to keep sort of a part of the charm of the old-fashioned feel – is that the only place in the stadium that you can look to see what time it is is on the manual scoreboard. There's no other place in the stadium to see the time. They don't put it on on any of the digital boards. But they modernized it. It looks nice. You know, the White Sox stadium is uh, it's the type of stadium that there was this there's this brief period. Um, I would say 10, 20 year period where stadiums were going up and they were just sort of building them for the sake of building them. And they didn't put as much thought into the atmosphere itself. And so the the best way I can describe it is 
Um, when you build a stadium, and I think this also can, can count for, for football, it can count for any sport. You want to build it up, not out. And, yes. and, and that puts the fans who are in the second or third decks on top of the action. So if you're sitting at the Camp Nou, for example, and you're all the way on the, the, in the, the highest row on the top tier, you're very far from the game. Um, and that, I think, can feel like you're detached a little bit from the game at times, and the atmosphere is a little less comforting and, and not as tight-knit because the, the sound doesn't quite hold inside the stadium the same way. You know, there's a new stadium that was built in Arlington, right outside next to Dallas in Texas, just a couple of years ago, Globe Life Field. And that one, they did it perfectly because they built it up. So even if you're further up, you're still sort of right there. And it feels like you, no matter where you're sitting, you're a part of the action. And in doing that, they sacrifice a couple of probably a couple of thousand seats in, in attendance. But you don't need that for every game because you're not going to sell. It's baseball is 162 games in a year. You're not going to sell out every game. No, that's just pretty, pretty interesting. So you've got the, so almost the um, guaranteed right field. It was, I said, built in at a time where it's not particularly the best time for for, for stadium architecture. But that's obviously been they've been fixed now with the the the, the retro, the new retro era, or however it's called, on um, with some stadium ballparks that have sprung up since since, since the mid nineties. Um, but would you say just in in general, um, Wrigley Field, that's probably the number one. Would everybody say that, or is there a case for for Fenway Fenway Park yeah. as well being? Those are the two. Those yeah. are the two. I think anybody in the country, maybe outside of LA, would tell you that Wrigley and Fenway would be the top two. I think there's a case to be made for Dodger Stadium. Um, I think Dodger Stadium could use a little bit of updating, personally, uh, here and there. But it's also historic because it's been around for a long time. But no, Fenway. Fenway and Wrigley are the two. I mean, if you're a baseball fan and you've never been to a game in the United States uh, or Toronto, for that matter, and you want to go see uh, a game, those would be the first two places I'd recommend. Tickets are not easy, but the atmosphere and and the general history and story around them being there, yeah, it's great. Yeah, this is interesting. You mentioned those those, those cities. Um, so. In, in Toronto, for example, I spent um, a few months working in Toronto back in 2017. Uh, and at that time, the like the basketball and the hockey arena, it was renamed from Air Canada Centre to Scotiabank Arena. And everybody was furious, like, how dare you change it? It's the Air Canada Centre. And I was confused. I was like, do you guys work for the airline? It's a, it's, 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 it's a sponsor name. Why is it important that the name of the sponsor? So Fenway and Wrigley and Dodger Stadium, would you say... Those brands uh, would outweigh any sponsored name for those those three parks. So Fenway would always be Fenway. It would never be Pepsi Park or, or something. Those three, I would I would gather that the names would never change completely. But I think all you got to do, I would never say never, because all you got to do is look at the Camp Nou and realize that now it's called the Spotify Camp Nou. And so there's always there's always a chance, right? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe they put a, a name before it. I understand. The attachment, though, to even a branded name, for example, um, the 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 White Sox Stadium was originally called uh, New Comiskey Park because the park before that was was called Comiskey. It was old Comiskey. They made the new one. Um, Comiskey Park was then 
changed to U.S. cellular field, which is why, as you mentioned, uh, people referred to it as the cell. We go down to the cell. And then uh, because of, you know, certain agreements here and there between Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, and the, the, the people that he knew within Guaranteed Rate, they made an agreement on naming rights, and it turned into Guaranteed Rate Field, where outside of the stadium there's a giant arrow pointing down because Guaranteed Rate is a, a, a company that's trying to get you to lower your mortgage rates. So it's a little bit of a strange look, and a lot of people don't like it. Some people still call it Comiskey. Some people still call it The Cell. If people want to refer to the new name, they like to get cheeky, and they call it The G-Spot. It's really, it's, it's really, you know, dealer's choice. But I would say it's not just baseball. The, the, what is now referred to in Chicago as the Willis Tower for decades was formerly Sears Tower. And everyone in Chicago would refer to it as Sears Tower. And when they made that change, nobody wanted to assimilate to that. So it's, I'd say it's everywhere. Okay. So with the, again, with the, with the White Sox, um, I mean, if, I was be, be in Chicago and I wanted to sound sound like a local. Would I still still call it the the cell? Would I call it the the, the new Comiskey? Or would I just say the White Sox White Sox ballpark? What would be the how would I best sound like a local? Depends who you're talking to. You're amongst friends. We we usually go with the G spot. <laughs> Honestly, okay. it's just it's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, ever since that change, there hasn't been. I would say a clear-cut answer to that. We're going down to the game. The Sox are at home. Let's go, you know. Or, yeah, I, no, no one says we're going to guaranteed rate field. If you do that, you're wrong. Okay. So anything but the, the corporate guaranteed rate field. So uh, I'll, I'll, st I'll stick with the G-spot, don't worry. Um, so we were speaking, Spence, just before we went on air, that apart from a couple of new ones that have been open since you've been living at Euro in Europe, you've been to had been to all all 30 Major League Baseball ballparks. So how how did you manage that with these always-on White Sox uh, road trips, or would you go as a neutral spectator just to ensure you tick them all off? How, how is it possible for such a, such a young guy? Yeah, well, when, when I was in school, um, you know, a lot of families for their winter break, um, even though there's no baseball in the winter, or spring break or summer break or what have you, they would go on vacations to the Caribbean or, you know, Mexico or whatever normal family vacations they did. But my dad and I, um, we always had a different thought in mind, and that was sporting events. So in the winter, it was basketball uh, and in, in the spring. And in the summer, it was always baseball. And it, it, the first baseball trip was back in 2001. I was, I think, eight or nine years old. And we did an East Coast trip where we covered the old Yankee Stadium, um, the old Mets Stadium, which was Shea Stadium. Uh, we did Baltimore, Camden Yards. And I want to say there was one more in there, but I, off the top of my head, I can't remember it. Um, oh, and we did Fenway. And, and so after that started to sort of get the ball rolling, we then started planning months in advance all of these different trips. Um, that my dad down throughout the years after we sort of finished it all, uh, he ended up writing a book about it called, oh, okay. called Relationships. And it's all about basically getting out on the open road and it doesn't necessarily have to be baseball or basketball or sports. It can be whatever you have a mutual interest and bond with your kids or whatever it is. But the idea is to go on a road trip. And for us, it would be baseball. We would plan, I know, I remember we did one in California in 2006. 
where we started in San Diego. We did San Diego. We did the two teams in LA. We drove up to San Francisco, all driving, right? Flying from Chicago and then and then doing the driving. And the higher car and doing the, the West Coast, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so after a couple of times of doing this, it was just about geographical planning and trying to tick off all the boxes and saying, well, we could do you know, uh, Tampa Bay and Miami, we could do Texas. So the Rangers and the Astros, we did California, we did the, 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 the Midwest, like St. Louis, Kansas City. And pretty soon we started checking off all the boxes. And right around the time I graduated high school, we were done with every MLB and every NBA stadium. Wow. So it was uh, um, a particular systematic way to do, do so with, with your father. So really for some reason, from what I've heard, I mean, for, for those listening, Spence and I had a, have a mutual friend who, who put us in touch. Uh, so Jamie just said, hey, you've been to a lot of stadiums and that was well, what sold me to, to reach out. But it's nice to know that it's, uh, there's a lot, a lot more to it, to it than that. Um, is your dad an author in general or he was just so inspired by your journey that the book became the natural, natural conclusion to these adventures? Yeah, he no, he he just wrote the book for fun. Um, it's available. I, I I think the website's still up and running. It's myrelationships.com, and he still, you know, he 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 he's, he does. He's the kind of uh, he's the kind of dad that does all different kinds of things because he he likes to find things that inspires him. And I know that trip or those sets of trips were were important because I would say that it's a pretty good bet that. It had a lot to do with me ending up working in sports in the end, because uh, uh, I've been in the, the sports media business for a little over 10 years, and and I don't want to go anywhere else. Uh, just happens to be in Europe now. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get all, you know, all of the the top flight EPL and La Liga stadiums down for a while with work and everything. But I, I'm definitely ticking off the boxes for sure. Definitely trying. So, again, there's uh, slightly harder because we want to do every Premier League game, Premier League stadiums, and each each year yeah. they change. So the, the lack of pro rather than the MLB and NBA is a, a yeah. slight slight help help to that. Um, so in terms of, I know we've discussed your favourites being uh, the Chicago ones, and of course those historical stadiums. Is there any ballparks from from your trip that you like? This is terrible. How can they possibly be playing professional sports here? This is. The, the, the view is terrible, the, the hitting winds are terrible, or, or or the merits to all of them, is what I'm trying to ask. Terrible. Okay. I, I, wasn't, ex- <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I'll tell you that beforehand, the other, yeah. the other two that I would highly recommend would be uh, that, that, are, that wouldn't fly as high on the radar as, say, Fenway or Wrigley, because those are historic, would be Petco Park in San Diego and PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Those are two of the most beautifully aesthetic stadiums with uh, right in the in the middle of downtown the city skyline in the background uh beautiful atmosphere great concourse with concessions and and just it's just a great place to enjoy a baseball game pittsburgh and san diego are the two yeah. as for places yeah, maybe terrible is the wrong word maybe maybe there are reasons no, to there are. beautiful and positives okay they, they exist. Uh, I'm trying to think of a second one because right now I can only think of one. The one that I would say is the worst, and it's pretty universally understood, is in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is the the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays. Tropicana Field is, uh, it's just, it's a dome and it's strange and it's just not a place for a baseball game. <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah, okay, so it's too too hot to to in, to enclose and without that downtown feel or something. Well, they, they have air conditioning inside. Okay. It's, it's definitely comfortable, but it's just 
you know, it's uh, it's it's sort of dark and gloomy inside. It doesn't feel like you're outside enjoying a baseball game. Uh, the the artificial turf is just that. It, it's 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 literally just uh, it's worse than an artificial, you know, fifth tier, you know, non grass football pitch. It's just it, it, I don't understand how they play baseball on it. It's it's really strange. I think there's a slab of concrete underneath it. If I had to guess. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I've, uh, again, my episode that went out uh, just before this one, I spoke with um, with EJ about, about the Yankees, and he was saying how, not, not didn't mention the ballpark, how great the Rays were as an organization in terms yes. of um, a, a, a small team really pitching above their weight. So maybe maybe that home yeah. field advantage has a, a tiny bit, bit to do with it. So if you're yeah. a, a Rays fan and you're listening, get in touch to defend your team in, in the next episode. Totally. They're a great organization. They do things very well to build from the inside, for sure. Right. So um, you've mentioned, Spence, that you you started your career working for was one of the Cubs minor league teams. Is that right? Yeah, I, I worked in minor league baseball for eight years. And you could do a whole nother episode on minor league baseball because that's another subculture of America that uh, to me is really interesting because I spent eight different summers in eight different cities. Um, wow. And and they were small cities. Uh, one was a Cubs affiliate in Knoxville, Tennessee. Another one was a Brewers affiliate in Biloxi, Mississippi. I've been in Fort Myers, Florida, uh, which is a Twins affiliate, Dunedin, Florida, working for the Blue Jays for um, for a spring training and for the summer. Uh, I've been in Michigan a couple of times. It's it's a whole nother subculture, minor league baseball, but uh, it's also long days and, and long nights and uh, a lot of baseball. No, certainly. Again, we've got, it seems like we've opened a, a full, a full treasure trove of stories. So we'll certainly have to have you back on just to talk about your your adventures in in minor league baseball. Uh, but the again, particular theme wanted to ask with you. So again, you moved to to Girona, so an hour north of Barcelona. Um, yeah. That was purely to because you'd completed baseball and you wanted to try something new, or was there a particular? Or you'd already spoke Spanish and you wanted to. To improve your language skills, what was the main reason for for leaving baseball world behind to, to moving moving to Europe? Uh, there were definitely a number of reasons. Uh, I I met my now girlfriend in Chicago in December of 2017, and we had been doing long distance for for a while. And she lived in Girona, so uh, I always thought that she, based on my job uh, searches and and what was out there and how my sort of career trajectory was looking, that she would always come to the U.S. and then uh, I remember during COVID, uh, I we we went about ten months without being able to see each other because of the travel restrictions and everything. And then I finally got uh, special permission from the Spanish embassy in Chicago to come here to Spain. And I came and stayed for three months before my next season started. And for those three months, I stayed here like I lived here. And I just said, I was like, you know what, this place is great. I, I don't I don't want to leave. So uh, we started a little search, and as luck would have it, the folks at Barca Studios were looking for somebody who could call games and speak English, and luckily I can do both of those mildly well. And uh, and now here we are, and uh, living in Girona, touring around Europe to seeing other games when I have a few days off, couldn't be better. Perfect. So your knowledge of, of soccer, so obviously you mentioned it was NBA and MLB from your trips to your, your dad. It was never MLS. You were a complete novice to soccer when you started dating this this Spanish girl, or did you have a, an increasing not awareness of the sport over the past years? 
Uh, if I'm being fully transparent, I would say I always watched the World Cup growing up. Um, I, I wish I had been more involved with the local leagues like the MLS uh, when I was younger. We all, we all, everyone played when, when we were in grade school. We all played like park district soccer and it would be like one amoeba chasing the ball kind of thing when you're, you know, mm -hmm. seven years old. Um, but in terms of following it, we always watch the World Cup. So I have memories of, of you know, different different moments. Uh, like I remember this is Don Headbutt perfectly in my brain as a kid. And then I would say I really started getting into it around 2016, 2017, when me and a couple of my best friends from, from childhood, you know, one day we're scrolling on a Saturday morning through the channels. We're waiting for college football to come on, which I don't really follow much anymore. But at the time it was like, all right, we need something in that window in the morning to follow. And we, I think we stumbled. It was like a, a Chelsea Swansea game in the prem. And it was like one versus 20 or something. And, and Swansea just, just blew him out of the water. And, and we all looked at each other and we were like, what if this sport's amazing? Like what, what, what have we been missing? Yeah. And from there, we just sort of picked our teams, uh, latched onto it. And because I, I always have to go a step further, I started developing, I have a team in every country in almost every division now. So, um, in some, in some cases in, in La Liga, it's two because I root for Girona at the bottom of the table and I root for Barca at the top. So that an, uh, increasing, so you move with a girlfriend and she's like, why am I dating this guy who's got a whole wardrobe full of, of, of soccer jerseys? Or is that you've got one from every team? Or how, how do you represent uh, your fandom? No, the first the first real chance that I had to tour stadiums was the first time that I came to visit her here in 2018. We had met in 2017. We were sort of just chatting along for the, the 2018 baseball season. I was in Mississippi. Um, which is a place that if you want to see what other parts of America look like, I would recommend going <laughs> going to see that. Um, and and uh, and so I said, okay, I'm gonna come to Girona. I'm gonna use your house as sort of like a home base. and I'm gonna do I, did, I think I stayed in in Europe for it was after the off during the off season of baseball, I think I stayed in Europe for probably four weeks or so and I said all right we're gonna go to Dortmund and see a Champions League game and I'm gonna go to Madrid and, and see a Madrid derby with Atleti and, and Real Madrid and we saw a game at the Camp Nou and I saw a game at Girona we went to Anfield um, my friend and I we went to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge we went to Hertha Berlin I went to see the Nations League in France in Paris between France and Germany uh, we went to a QPR game against Aston Villa the year before they got promoted. Like we just did everything we could, and it was so much fun. So it's, it's yes, the, the smallness of, of Europe and the variety of the leagues and the competitions. You mentioned what four or five different competitions from the Champions League to the Championship and uh, everything in between. So it certainly is a a groundhopper's paradise for living in Europe, um, but particularly working in Europe and not necessarily. Working Europe, but the difference in, in sports, how different is calling a 90-minute soccer game compared to a sometimes three or four-hour baseball game? Yeah, it's actually, the funny thing is most of the broadcasters in the United States, the majority of them, got their start in minor league baseball um, because that's where the jobs are most abundant. There's a hundred, at one time there was 160 minor league baseball teams. And all of them need broadcasters, uh, and many of them need more than one. It doesn't pay a lot, though the hours are, are far beyond 40 per week. Mm -hmm. But 
um, when you call a baseball game, when you watch a baseball game, there are a lot of periods of downtime. And you have to fill it. I always used to say and still do that. It's You have to fill it like a podcast. So when you make that your base of talent to start as a broadcaster in baseball, there's still actionable moments that you call and you broadcast. But every sport's going to have downtime. And I would say football, when when uh for you know let's say when when Valladolid is leading at the Bernabeu 1-0 in the 70th minute there's going to be quite a bit of downtime time wasting yeah just just rolling around you've got to figure out a way to find a balance between filling that time and also letting the game breathe and just you know shutting the hell up and just backing off and and staying out of it and baseball preps you for that for sure because football is a sport where the actionable moment itself can come at any time, but there's also a lot of just head tennis in the midfield that you have to sort of figure out what am I going to describe and what can I let go. So is, is there been any, any case in your football um, broadcasting career where you've accidentally slipped into a, a baseball terminology or how have you had to, I mean, I'm not sure if your audiences are in, in the US or in Europe, have you had to really Europeanize your your voice when you're recalling a, a Girona game, do your friends make fun of how different you sound from when you were covering Biloxi, Mississippi? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm sure that I throw a few Americanisms in there at least a couple of times per game. I'm sure of it. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it only sounds weird to us because you haven't heard it before. If you had... If you had an American calling, let's say, for example, the world feed of a, a Fulham-Brentford game, people listening on the world feed are going to go, that just doesn't sound right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. I'll be the first to tell you that because I'm hoping that at some point that that's something that someone can look at and say, hey, maybe we could use the guy who's yeah, going to try yeah. what he's doing. But it would be the same if you heard uh, a guy with a British accent calling a... I'm baseball or American football or, or NBA game, and you go, well, I don't know if that's exactly what I'm used to, but I'll go with it, sure. So, and and they would throw in various, you know, idioms from their dialect as well, and I think that's just a different way to look at it. I think it's oh, so just add, add, as color to, to to the broadcast, or as your, um, yeah, it's a good way of looking at that. You or what you bring from this alternative background that makes you, as long as you're getting the the technical things accurate then you're adding adding color and adding some some better thoughts to to your work so hopefully we we can hear hear you on the easiest one that you can use for for transitioning baseball to to football is when there's a a ball that, that maybe is headed clear from a corner it comes out to the top of the box and someone lines up for a big volley that to try and put it in and they just miss it completely you can say a big swing and a miss it's just basically like you know strike one yeah so there are there are things there of that have a bit of an overlap um but uh practically so in uh football commentary you're sat um in the middle of the pitch um is there a particular position where you'd be sat in a in a baseball commentary or was it completely vary depending on, on the ballpark where the media facilities are traditionally you're always put behind home plate so that okay. um you know the the hardest thing to pick up on if you're a new baseball fan 
um, among many things. It's it's as soon as you're once you're there, it's it's great. But I understand. I had to describe the sport to my girlfriend the first time I took her to a spring training game from scratch. It's tough. Um, the 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 hardest thing to pick up on when you're learning the nuances is the different types of pitches. Is that a fastball? Is that a changeup? Is that a curveball? Is it a slider? Is it a knuckleball? You you have to. You have to see that. And from every other angle besides behind home plate, it's very difficult to see that. You can see a curveball or a slider from behind home plate a little bit easier. A fastball and a changeup, both pitches are straight, generally. They don't move. So you have to see the pitch and then, you know, either look up at the um, at the radar gun to see how fast the pitch was. Or, you know, maybe you've seen that pitcher pitch a hundred times and you already know what the pitch looks like coming out of his hand. but um, the, the high the high home behind home plate angle is the best. To pick that's that the best place. So again, it's a very those are practical reasons I hadn't hadn't thought of that. If that's obviously the key the key action of the game, the the speed of the pitch can really really alter, of course, how how well the batter does does doesn't hit. So I guess that's what makes it more more important than a a football a football placing. Yeah. So in, in terms of um, your days in, in in the minor leagues, is maybe. Um, slightly off topic but was there is there any bad stories or any from i don't know you have to sit behind home plate for five hours with no no bathroom facilities in, in one ballpark or with, without food and drink in the hot hot tennessee wow. summer or what are the stories yeah. from commentating <laughs> on minor league baseball how much time do you have <laughs> um i'll give you i'll give you my favorite uh I was working in Battle Creek, Michigan in 2013. I was still in college. It was a summer internship. They were uh, the name of the team, the Battle Creek Bombers. They are no longer the Bombers. They're now the Battle Creek Battle Jacks. Um, that's a whole other element of minor league baseball. They all got wacky names. And um, it was a college wood bat summer league. So in college baseball, they play with aluminum bats. But these summer leagues, they play with wood bats and they take some of the best players from all over the country who want to continue playing after the college baseball season is over so that they can get noticed, get better, get drafted, go on to play professionally. And it would also apply to broadcasters who were looking for internships. I didn't get paid that summer, but, you know, I did 70 games in 74 days. And um, and so it was quite obviously low budget. And the bus that we had was. Uh, it looked like if you've ever seen the movie Major League, which is a good baseball movie, I'd recommend it. It was straight out of the Major League 1970s style bus, like coach bus. And it was shared, unbeknownst to us, earlier in the season with a women's professional American football team. And um, and so once their season was over. Ours began, and the bus just, at times, it felt like it was going to break down. Like, we knew at some point it was going to break down. And when you filled it up at the gas t- at the gas station, it was $1,000 to fill it up because it was just this gas-guzzling machine. And it was the last series of the entire season. We were driving home from Wisconsin. It was going to be like a seven-hour bus ride. We were getting from – we were, like, right in between Milwaukee and Chicago. We were on the highway, and all of a sudden, we're driving home, getting ready to go home, and then we just hear <laughs> – and we're like, this is it. Yeah. And uh, the bus pulls over to the side of the road, and we're stranded for hours. And I think they had to end up towing the bus to the n- nearest rest area, 
And then they hauled us back in these tiny party bus vans that they rented downtown Chicago, like four or five of us at a time. And we ended up getting there. We left Wisconsin at 11 p.m. or so the night before. We ended up getting into Battle Creek probably around 8 a.m., 9 a.m. the next day. It was it, it was a long night out. Yeah. But the whole series like that's that's the this trailer for our a complete podcast series, the adventures of um, a minor league summer intern. Um, but no, Spence, you've been incredibly generous with your time already, and I don't want to keep you too long. So I'll ask you a question that I'm asking every every guest on, on this podcast. So if I were to visit uh, the, the G spot, what is the number one thing I, I need to do? Any particular snack I need to try? Any tradition? What was the number one thing about about the White Sox ballpark? Yes, I have a, a tradition every time I go back, for sure. Um, my two favorites that fortunately still exist, uh, they're both on the first level concourse. They're both standing carts. One is the Cuban sandwich. It's a nice pressed piece of flat French bread on the grill with um, mustard, pickles, pulled pork, and sweet ham. Uh, that's that's the traditional yeah. Cuban sandwich. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the elotes, which is the corn that they, they it's, it sounds simple, but man, is it good. They, they take a corn on the cob, they shave it off the cob, put it into a little tub, and then they throw whatever topping you want that they have on it. You can choose Parmesan, um, lime juice, chili flakes, mayo, uh, it's one other thing I'm forgetting, and you can put all of it on there, and it creates this this nice sweet corn that, that is perfect at a ballpark. Strange, but it's not normal, but I, but I love it. No, no, not normal, that's, that's what we, we won't want to hear about on, on this podcast. So, Spence, again, thank you very much for your time, and I'm sure we'll put the in touch when, when the series get, gets to get the minor leagues. Thanks very much for your time. Sorry, where where, where can we find you? What's the best best channels or Twitter? Twitter? pages uh, or websites yeah um twitter is at spence siegel just my name s-p-e-n-c-e-s-i-e-g-e-l and i'm always around barca studios we do uh barca live every match day on youtube at the fc barcelona channel and so we've got one today coming up soon and it'll be it'll be another another fun afternoon of barca football so thanks for having me that's all spencer and thanks to all for listening find the podcast at Swollen Jaw Pod and please remember to share and review so that other baseball fans can find us. Please get in touch if you have a story, idea or suggestion about your team that I need to know about and tune in next week to hear more about my journey into baseball.